Hello and welcome to Tech Law Tracker, Episode 5, with your host, Margot Cruz. So before I get started, I just want to highly, highly recommend that you listen to Congressional Dish, Episode number 163, titled Net Neutrality. That's another great podcast run by the wonderful Jennifer Briney. I know net neutrality has kind of fallen out of the news since that big FCC vote, but this is a seriously great episode, explains exactly what's going on, and yeah, it's still going on, it hasn't been decided yet, it's just part of a long process, and how this whole concept of net neutrality is even up for debate. She also explains how it hasn't been formally classified into law, whether the internet is a public utility or it's a communication service, and how that leaves it open to interpretation by each administration's appointees to the FCC. And she explains so much more stuff. I can't even try to explain it as well as she does, but when you listen, you will be like, wow. So anyway, for this episode, I'm going to get a little more historical and really just summarize these two papers I read about telecoms regulation through the ages that I thought were super interesting. And I think this is going to provide some context for the current proposed laws and regulations I've been reading about, but, you know, I haven't had any background on them. You know, I'm, once again, I'm just a student, just learning this stuff. Definitely not a lawyer. <laughs> One day will be a lawyer, but not a lawyer at all. Now. So, just learning. And reading. So, once again, always feel free to email me, techlawtracker at gmail.com. So, the first article I'm going to tell you all about today was actually a transcript from a speech given in 1996 at a conference called the Conference on the Future of Telecommunications, a German-American Dialogue. Uh, this speech was titled, Towards a Common Law of Telecom, and the speaker was Eli M. Noam. Um, I actually found this speech in, like, this old website of Columbia University that had it I don't know, just posted somewhere. Um, super interesting stuff, though. Um, the main subject of the speech was the 1996 Te Comprehensive Telecommunications Act. Um, and this was actually a federal bill, but I make exception for this episode, obviously because this is all about national trends in telecommunications regulations. So, very interesting stuff. Uh, apparently, this was a huge omnibus bill, similar to the omnibus, probably even bigger than that omnibus that I read about last week, where I just only read you like a small section of it, and it still took up 45 minutes. Um, this speech was kind of a comment on that bill, uh, and it was also about the larger topic of legislation on technology and how regulations work and the different for forces at play with all that. So, yeah, it, um, so the thing that really struck, stuck out to me was actually Noam's comment on regulations and who actually pushes for regulations. Apparently at the time, there was talk of getting rid of the FCC in order to have deregulation, which was a big topic of discussion, at least in these circles, uh, that this speech was being given to. So people thought, apparently, that if you got rid of the FCC, the market for telecommunications would be more deregulated. 
But Noam says in the speech that getting rid of the FCC would just make people feel good about it, but it wouldn't really change much for regulation in reality. And he says, quote, much of regulation is due to the demands by business. And, unquote, and, quote, the economic interests that want to create advantage for themselves will simply do their policy shopping at another forum, such as the state commissions, Congress, state legislatures, court, Justice Department, dot, 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 Commerce Department, White House, ITU, just lists endless, or in Brussels, or WTO. Like, lists endless agencies and organizations and state houses, etc. So he's saying, you know, people will find a venue for their regulations push. Uh, and more specifically, businesses will, will find a venue for that. Um, so yeah, that jumped out to me because this whole idea of regulation, it put it in a new frame from, from, my, from my perspective because... I always thought of regulation in terms of companies running away from it or lobbying hard against it, but they actually do lobby for it, just not in the way that I might think. They actually want regulation, and they want to jump to have regulation in favor of them before somebody else gets to the agency or Congress first and or, or FCC and gets the regulation in their favor for their company. So... They want the regulation that will favor them the most, so they're not going to run away from all regulation. So I guess lobbying, maybe from this perspective, is not so much anti-regulation, but just pro-specific regulation. And then uh, Noam goes on to elaborate about how he thinks, you know, it's a little bit silly to think that getting rid of the FCC is going to reduce regulation, And so he further illustrates this point by using this example of an old agency called the Civil Civil Aeronautics Board, CAB, which I had never really heard of before. But it was a government agency uh, meant to regulate the airline industry. It got dissolved in 1985 after a big push for deregulation and getting rid of this CAB. And Noam says that people at the time thought that once the CAB was dissolved, the airline industry would be genuinely deregulated. But then he goes on to say that the airline industry today is, or at the time this was written in 1996, that was 10 years or 11 years after the CAB was dissolved, the airline industry was just as regulated as before, uh, just through different methods and of course, now zooming out, we still have the FAA, the NTSB, and the TSA regulating different aspects of transportation. Um, and actually, yeah, this was an aside which I didn't look that far into, but I'm honestly just going to read to you from this Wikipedia page on the U.S. government role in civil av- aviation. That's the title of the page. Um, and this is just the timeline of different agencies that have governed the airline industry in one way or another. So, in 1934, the Civil Aeronautics Branch was renamed the Bureau of Air Commerce to reflect the growing importance of commercial flying, but was soon divided into two authorities, the Civil Aeronautics Administration, concerned with air traffic control, and the Civil Aeronautics Board, concerned with safety regulations and accident investigations. 
Under the, Civil, the Federal Aviation Act of 1958, the CAA's powers were transferred to a new independent body, the Federal Aviation Agency. In the same year, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which is actually NASA, was created after the Soviet Union's launch of the first satellite. The accident investigation powers of the CAB were transferred to the new National Transportation Safety Board, which is the NTSB, which was, that was back in 1967, so way before the CAB was dissolved. And at the same time, the U.S. Department of Transportation was created, also in 1967. So, you know, just an overview, who knows, I probably got trolled by a couple of Wikipedia changers on the dates and all that. But in terms of getting a list of different agencies that have regulated transportation and the airline industry over time. I thought that was definitely very interesting. So yeah, after reading about all those transfers, it seemed like he had a strong point there. Um, it seems like the agencies doing different aspects of regulation transferred and changed, and even before the CAB dissolution. Um, often, by the time something happens... You know, it's already been done, like, on the low end. Um, I remember learning in this public policy class I took, um, which actually talked a lot about agencies and the way they work. Um, agencies have a tendency to stick around longer than they need to be in existence, simply because the people in them, if you lose that agency, you lose your job, so... They will do a lot to justify their existence and justify their budget, and nobody wants their budget to go down, even if they don't need it anymore, so they're going to spend it every year. And if you, do, if you don't spend your entire budget one year, you don't get the same budget the next year. You're going to get a lower budget. So there's a lot of tendency to spend the entire budget, even if it's not necessary. There's a lot of extra spending at the end of the year, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, agencies. They do stuff. The third thing I pulled from this speech was a comment about the trade-off between putting things into law, like putting them into legislation that passes through the House and the Senate and is signed by some executive, versus leaving them in the law vague enough to be up for interpretation by each agency, which means up to interpretation by the people that each administration appoints to the agency. So that means there can be larger swings in policy. Um, the FCC is an example of one such agency, and once again, Congressional Dish number 163 explained this so well. Um, so Noam's comment on this is that, quote, Congress should decide fundamental issues, but we have to leave the details that clutter the legislation to be flushed out by the expert agency, and we have such an agency in leadership referring to the FCC. Um, on the other hand, that means you have big swings in policy, and policy is set by these agencies, which is the situation we have right now. So if you know more about that, email me at techlawtracker.gmail.com. But yeah, zooming out a bit, to Noam's comments, Noam's comments on the law itself. I thought they were interesting because this was possibly the last time that major legislation has been passed on telecommunications issues. 
His first major comment is that this law is a step in the right direction, but the approach of having a huge piece of omnibus legislation is not going to be a good move in the future. And he also says there won't be any more of them. Quote, it's done its job for now, but it cannot be the way of doing the communications policy business of the nation in the future. What we need instead in the future is to rely on a, on a common law of telecommunications, not a central codex of telecommunications, end quote. And by common law, I think this means, this is being used figuratively, but common law is usually set by, by its frequency of being done. It's not set in legislation, it's set by the court ruling in a certain way every time. I think I remember that correctly from international law class. Anyway, I'm not exactly sure, but I, essentially this is like the agency setting the law and people's general opinion on, it, on a policy setting the law through the agencies. But yeah, in general, this got me thinking about all the different avenues for making law versus policy. I bet some people would think it's better to leave this stuff up to each administration and to have legislation be vague and let the appointees set the policy. But also, other people would think it's better to set it once and for all and then, you know, there's no big swings in policy that way because the, the administration's appointees can't decide so that's all up to individual preference. I mean, who knows what's better? Honestly, so much of this stuff is theoretical because you can urge Congress to pass a bill one way or the other, but lobbying takes so long and requires so much push. And one of the reasons why these omnibus bills do get passed uh, is because they're so big that nobody has time to read them. Not ordinary people, not lobbyists, and not Congress people. So they're, they're usually passed, the final version is usually like in existence one day or maybe two days before it gets passed, before the vote. And there's usually a lot of pressure to pass it one way or the other, and it's easy to throw little things in there that are now in law. Omnibus bills sometimes are easier to pass and sometimes are not, but that's one reason why things get passed as an omnibus rather than things, laws getting passed as small individual laws that would just change one thing. Anywho, on to the next article. My second article today is actually an academic paper called, titled, Telecommunications, Collective Bargaining in an Era of Industry Reconsolidation. This paper is from Cornell University. It's from the School of Industrial Labor Relations, so it is heavily focused on unions and their um, relationship with, com with the telecoms companies. But in addition to that stuff being super interesting, this paper also basically broke down a timeline of stages of development in the telecommunications industry regulation. So the first of three stages was the 1970s era in general. Um, this era had a lot of important developments in 
policy about telecommunications. Uh, and the first one was that the FCC made policy to allow competition in the markets for business telecommunications equipment and leased line services. So that was encouraging competition between telecommunications companies. Another important development was that some customers started purchasing their PBX equipment from competitors of AT&T's Western Electric rather than leasing it from a Bell company. Uh, and these are like the Southwestern Bells. These were the huge telephone companies, and many of their subsidiaries still exist today. So I guess as a result of that, both of them ended up losing out on a lot of business that they were used to getting because this seriously challenged both of these companies' roles as the sources of equipment and innovation, respectively, in the industry. And if you said, what is a PBX, as I did, that stands for Private Branch Exchange. And this was basically a money-saving solution developed to not have to have so many phone lines at like a large company or a, or a large home, where there was this thing called an enterprise that allowed a bunch of users to share just a few external lines rather than have everyone's desk individually have their own phone line going all the way to some central router or to the phone company itself, which would be pretty expensive. It sounds to me like it's basically an updated party line where like your phone is actually sharing the same line as 10 different phones, but people aren't using it all at the same time. Uh, anyway, the moving on, the next key development in this era is um, the development of the local area network design. That's the LAN or LAN. Uh, and these were the first data networks that relied on routers, not circuit switchers. And they could interconnect over leased telephone lines with mainframes or other LANs. Um, and those are um, important because the router was located on a single business's premises or on a home's premises, but mostly on businesses' premises at the time. And they didn't fall under common carrier regulations as a result of that. And I'm not exactly sure what that means practically, but I'm sure it was important. Um, I'm guessing it had a strong influence on the proliferation of LANs because when something is uh, fits under common carrier regulations, um, that means that that service has to transport transport goods or, in this case, data from anyone who's responsible, from, from anyone at all, because it's a common carrier, not a contract carrier that it can choose who it works with. And it's also responsible for any loss. So that's a lot of responsibility and liability for a phone company, so I could see why they would want to um, focus on putting routers in homes if that exempts them. Also, the LAN was the design concept that's used today for data networks almost everywhere. It's used for about 75% of telecommunications traffic. And in the 90s, there were things like LAN parties where people would just bring computers to each other's houses so that they could all be on the same LAN. Um, so that's one example of how that changed the internet forever. Dun, dun, dun. Anyway, that is the end of the first stage, the major developments in the first stage. The second stage of telecommunications legislation 
I mean, regulation. Regulations, not legislations. Um, just like policy stuff, is the 1980s and the early 90s. And the key thing about this era was competition in long-distance markets. So that was, and because of that, in order to do that, the deregulation of the long-distance market, I think. So in 1984, the Justice Department broke up AT&T, which had historically dominated a whole bunch of markets, in order to launch an era of competition. Uh, and this was premised on the use of inexpensive and decentralizing technologies based on satellite and microwave tech transmission, which this article caused an calls an erroneous set of technological forecasts. Um, so basically, they weren't planning correctly. They had these crazy ideas that that would actually work out. And because microwave network technology was basically obsolete by the time the AT&T divestiture actually happened, so by the time AT&T actually broke up into all its little companies, um, and satellite became like a secondary technology just for communicating with remote areas of the world, that the way that they broke up AT&T wasn't actually well done for the technology that ended up taking over or that ended up being dominant in the world. So at the same time as all this AT&T stuff was happening, um, the con customer premise equipment uh, was getting better and better. And those customer premise equipments are things like set-top boxes and telephones and things that connect you to your modem and your DSL and all that other stuff. Um, what gets you on the internet. And there were huge changes to the network switching architecture and fiber optics were being rolled out. And that really increased digital transmission capacity over wires. Um, and I think in that era, dial-up internet happened over our telephone lines. But also fiber optics was then the next step. I seem to remember watching commercials for that as a kid, like fiber optics. Crazy new thing. It's going to be so fast. Anyway. Um, another thing that changed when AT&T was being broken up was the long-distance arrangement for phone services that had been set up. And this seems a little convoluted, probably because it kind of was. I mean, who am I to judge? I wasn't even around then. So... With AT&T being one company, they had made this cross-subsidy arrangement between their local and their long-distance networks in order to provide universal phone service. And this universal service agreement had been made where long-distance prices were set above the cost of, you know, providing that service in order to subsidize the local rates, which were below the cost. So that's why it's always been, or it was so cheap to call locally and people would always be watching the time calling uh, long distance but since the FCC was breaking up AT&T it wasn't going to be the same all in the same company anymore so regulators had to create this new system that would like allow local rates to still be cheap and long distance rates to still be 
um, over costs and expensive. Um, and they called this access pricing, which required companies who were now going to be long-distance companies to just pay the local companies for the use of their local facilities uh, used to complete long-distance calls. And so this meant that local companies that were purely local didn't have to raise their rates too high. And this system apparently allowed companies like MCI and Sprint to get into the long-distance market in the 80s. Um, and they use AT&T's market and infrastructure while building their own network trunks. Uh, a trunk is a single transmission channel between two points. And the two points are the switching center and the node. So they basically built their own sections of network. Um, another important part of this era was that this new segmented market um, allowed a split into the wholesale and retail sectors right after it was open to competition. So companies like MCI, AT&T, and Sprint were the wholesalers. And then there were like 500 smaller resellers for retail and some retail resellers didn't even own any network facilities they just repackaged and resold wholesalers long distance service and these were companies like worldcom level three and q west so yeah i thought it was interesting that the encouragement of competition just ended up creating competition between retail level selling and I guess between wholesalers although the wholesalers owned the actual pieces of the equipment um, anybody with more thoughts on this definitely email me this is something I'm curious to hear more about so um, moving on in the late 90s wholesalers expanded their network really quickly because energy companies were putting fiber cable along their networks so I assume that means that the poles that carried energy lines um, just they were happy to put more transmission cables on them and cables that you could use for internet, phone, etc. That's just me guessing, but I think that means that they were more forthcoming with those agreements than they are these days, which I mentioned in the last couple episodes. And by the year 2000, there was a huge overbuild of fiber optic network capacity. And then because of this, the prices for wholesale dropped dramatically um, and a bunch of firms went bankrupt. I'm not so sure how prices go down or up when there's only a few companies, but um, I guess that's a question for another, another day because I'm definitely curious to learn more about this. And even with competition, it's still a segmented market with different companies controlling different areas. Um, but in the end, this was kind of beneficial to some because the cheaper prices for wholesale long distance allowed wireless companies to offer long distance service on the cell phone as part of a fixed price minutes packages as opposed to the way that would be on landlines, which was, you know, one price for long distance, one price for local. So... Um, I don't know if you remember, like, in the 2000s, I guess. In the early 2000s, in the late 90s, you started to see phone, uh, cell phone deals, like, 
you know, 30, 30 minutes or 90 minutes and free nights and weekends and stuff like that because they were using those overbuilt lines. And the other thing that happened is that Verizon, SBC, and Bell South did a lot of buying of network assets from bankrupt or financially distressed firms at huge amounts. So that really helped them get into the long-distance market. And finally, in the third stage, uh, which is basically the early 90s, early, <laughs> yeah, early 90s on, um, and this paper was published in 2002, so from the early 90s until 2002. And this era, the big thing was deregulation of local access markets and the rise of wireless and internet services and changes, changes in federal and state legislation. So this paper also says that the FCC, uh, sorry, <laughs> the Federal Telecommunications Act of 1996 which that whole speech I just spoke about earlier was all about, was designed to encourage competition at the local level. And because the local exchange carriers were then allowed to enter the long-distance service in exchange for opening their local access monopolies to competitors such as AT&T and MCI and Sprint, that really theoretically was supposed to increase competition. Uh, another thing about this 1996 Act is that it required that local access networks be unbundled into their separate elements, and these were actually a lot of different things. Um, there's a whole list, and I'll read you some of them. Things like facilities, switches, routers, transmission equipment, signaling systems, lines, poles, the local loops to the customer premises, and billing information for customers. Yes, that's an asset. Um, and this was all done so that there could be competition on these network elements. So different businesses could build or own different elements and didn't have to rely on leasing or reselling existing networks from the local Bell Monop former Bell Monopolies who owned the entire element bundles together. So in this paper goes on to say that even though they put all these things into law, and they were supposed to encourage competition and discourage the creation of these huge mega carriers like the former Bell Company and AT&T before the breakup. Actually, the opposite happened. There was a huge wave of mega carriers that provided all the voice and data services that were supposed to be competed over, and I'm going to just like list a bunch of mergers and acquisitions that happened. Um, one example is Verizon, which is actually former, several former regional bells. So um, the next like paragraph of this paper discusses exactly how the companies that just got broken up into very small pieces slowly reacquired each other piece by piece and came together into huge mega carriers once again. So this one is funny. Uh, New York Telephone merged with New England Telephone to, to form 9X. And then 9X was bought by the former Bell Atlantic. And then they, the former, former Bell Atlantic, merged with a company called GTE. 
And GTE was actually the re result of mergers and a lot of mergers and acquisitions previously. So together, um, Bell Atlantic and GTE formed Verizon in 2000. And so basically it goes from New York Telephone plus New England Telephone equals Bell Atlantic plus GTE equals Verizon. And then after that, Verizon tried to buy Airtouch and it didn't work out. But then they merged with Vodafone, which had just bought Airtouch. And together, all of that, all those companies I just listed formed Verizon Wireless. How many companies did I just mention? I'm not sure. But anyway, I thought that was super striking. Um, another example is SBC, which is a former Southwestern Bell. And at the time that this article was written in 2002, they were the dominant carrier in 13 states. And SBC bought Pacific Telesis and Southern New England Telephone and Ameritech and altogether became the dominant partner with Bell South, all to form Singular Wireless, which you may or may not have heard of. But I definitely may have had Singular Wireless when I was a kid. Not sure. That was definitely a huge company at the time, though. Anyway. Also, apparently, U.S. West, which was was bought by the new, at the time, long-distance company, Q West, which was headed by a former AT&T executive and then bought out U.S. West in 2000. So, yeah, in conclusion, a lot of companies just sort of reformed into mega carriers, not exactly in the way they were before. But um, the paper points out that, on the whole, there's a huge tendency to do that in spite of policies that are supposed to promote um, competition between these companies, between telecoms. And maybe that's because of the nature of the business, and maybe that's because of the nature of how risky the industry is. Lots of different explanations. Maybe that's because the laws weren't, weren't written in the right way or the policy wasn't set in the right way that actually discouraged mergers or actually encouraged competition. Um, overall, the former Bell Companies, which was the huge uh, company, the biggest telephone company for a long time, those former Bell Companies still dominate local access and provide 88% of local wireline service. And this was, once again, in 2002, but doesn't sound like it would be inaccurate today. I haven't looked into it. And actually, because of that 1996 act, those former Bells became wholesalers of local service to new industry entrants. And so, yeah, after all that, the question is, why all the reconsolidation, even though the laws were supposed to encourage competition? Um... Like I said, it could. I, I was reading a couple of their explanations, and they said one note is that it's a very risky business, so companies have a tendency to merge as much as they can because it's all just bets, like betting on what's going to be the next biggest technology. Nobody knew that LAN was going to be, that LANs were going to be the perfect network design, and who knows, perfect or not perfect, but the one that really caught on. 
who knows that fiber optics are going to be the one and that it's not just going to be, there's not going to be a new form of cable that carries data even faster. And if you develop, if you put all your money into fiber optics, where are you going to be if, if the, if in five more years you have to, you know, replace it with something else? Who knows? On the other hand, maybe the laws could have been better written. I mean, this paper is not from a, it's not a law school paper, so maybe a law school would have different comments on that. Um, they were just talking about the tendencies within the industry and the business itself. So yeah, that is the summary of what I grabbed from that paper. Very interesting read. And there's a lot more interesting stuff in there. They talk all about the interaction between the unions and the telecoms companies and the employment trends that go with it. And one interesting fun fact that I read in there was that the huge increase in managerial title jobs um, is a good... is one of the ways that companies have used to not hire into, hire into positions that would be in the union. So people will be classified as managerial without having any managerial responsibilities because if you are have a managerial title, you're not allowed to be in the union. Um, but yeah, there's so much more stuff in there, really interesting stuff um, about political campaigns that unions... Uh, became involved in as well as telecoms uh, um, company, you know, high, uh, higher ups, etc. Um, the way they've interacted on a policy level and things that the unions have actually been in favor of or against because it might have furthered their position in one, one way or another. Um, if you feel like reading an academic paper, and you care about this stuff, I, I would think that you would find this interesting. But I mean, you know, it's still an academic paper. No offense to academic paper writers. They just, they're long and dense. You know what I mean. And that concludes my episode on the development of telecommunications legislation. I thought it was a super interesting episode to read for and about. Um, if you have any thoughts or comments or questions or if there's any bills you want me to check out or articles you want me to read, I don't need to list out like every single thing that you could possibly email me about, but those are the general things. Actually, I think I just listed almost every single thing, but techlawtracker at gmail.com. Email me, please, and I will definitely read your email. Um, also email me if I made an error because chances are, you know more about this stuff than I do. I am just learning about it. Actually, coincidentally, not coincidentally, but I'm starting law school in the fall. So excited. Uh, so I will be an actual lawyer one day, but I'm not a lawyer today. So don't take anything I say seriously. Um, as it's not legal advice. I don't know what the legal term is for that, but I'm not a lawyer, so it's not a thing. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode, and I hope you all have a wonderful 
day or evening or whenever you're listening. I hope that's good. And with that, I will bid you goodbye. This has been Tech Law Tracker with your host, Marco Cruz. Tech Law Tracker dot com.